Thank you to our sponsor, Open Society Foundations, an organization that works to build vibrant and tolerant societies whose governments are accountable and open to the participation of all people. I am Tanika Boyd, Chief of Staff at uh, Color of Change. First and foremost, um, I obviously want to thank uh, Raymond Santana for being here today. If you all can give him a round of applause. I also want to thank uh, our partners and allies uh, in this work in this region who uh, helped put this event on tonight and have done just an incredible job um, as we think about the way we reform our criminal justice system and all our systems through narrative. Um, and so if we can give Converge a round of applause and also the Greater New Orleans Funders Network. So just a little bit about Color of Change and who we are. So um, New Orleans is such a just incredible, powerful place for our organization. So Color of Change was founded in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina when black people sat on their roofs. Um, literally, uh, we all watched in horror um, as folks were just waiting to die. And frankly, no one was disappointed uh, or nobody was afraid uh, to disappoint black people. And so our organization was founded uh, with an email list of 1,000 people uh, 14 years ago to hold corporations, media, and the systems accountable uh, for how they were treating black people. And now uh, we are over 1.5 million members. We're working on everything from holding Facebook accountable to digital redlining. We are holding prosecutors accountable in places like uh, St. Louis County in Ferguson. We went in to kick out the 25-year incumbent, uh, Bob McCullough, for refusing to prosecute in the Mike Brown case. Uh, we went in in Philadelphia. We went in in Cook County. Um, and we're just doing incredible, incredible work. Uh, and some of that work, has also led us to the intersection of storytelling uh, and criminal justice work. And so we were honored uh, through our relationship and partnership with Ava DuRenay uh, to go in uh, and support Netflix um, in the When They See Us uh, movie and the series and the campaign. And so we were really excited to launch a microsite through our Color of Change Hollywood work. Uh, and we were just very excited to be a part of that. And so some of what, uh, why we're mic'd today and some of what the camera is about is that this is an episode of our Color of Change Hollywood work. Um, and it is initiative of uh, our Color of Change Hollywood um, to tell black stories and to think about the nuance ways that black folks are portrayed. Um, and so it's really important that we're here with Raymond today, who is known um, not only as one of the exonerated five, 
but also uh, he is uh, the founder of Park Madison, New York. Come on, come on, DeVore, and stand up and show the people your shirt. Come on. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, and in so many ways, it's become a cultural marker. And so I think so many folks obviously know about when they see us. It has um, skyrocketed into our cultural imagination, into our understanding. But not a lot of people know that it all started with a tweet <laughs> to Ava. So I'd love for you to tell us that story, not just about that tweet, but why you trusted her specifically to tell your story um, after so many folks in the media were actually at that time getting it wrong. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me, New Orleans. It's an honor to be here today. Um, I wound up going to see the movie Selma, and 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 watching Selma, there's this scene where um, Loretta is confronting Dr. King about other women, and I'm sitting there watching this scene, and the theater is quiet. And in my mind, I'm saying, who has the nerve to put this in this movie, right? Because this is Dr. King, and we have him on this pedestal. This is our icon, and you don't want to show him in a bad light. But then as, as I thought about it, I said, whoever did this, they showed that he was a human being, mm. that he's capable of making mistakes. And so from there, I went and I started researching who is Ava DuVernay. And, um, and in my research, you know, from what I got was just that this was a person who just wanted to tell the truth. She wanted to tell these stories, she wanted to tell these narratives, and she didn't want to change them, she wanted them to stay authentic and stay original. And it's there that I said, this is the person needs to tell our story. Because usually, um, other times, people would um, ask to tell our story, or they would do like specials on us, and they would just chop it up and then put it in the air, and then ask the public to decide. So they were telling our narrative, and they were changing our narrative. And I needed somebody that was going to listen and want to be on board and not change our narrative. Let us be in charge of the narrative. And so when I got to, um, so with Ava, it started out me following her on Twitter, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so she started following me back. And I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> we're getting somewhere. Yeah, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> it, it, we got a little bit of traction. And so after that, I just, I kept playing with the idea. And then one day I said, you know what? I got to just take my shot. And so I created the tweet and then I put it out there and then she retweeted it. So when she retweeted it, I said, oh, we got a couple of more steps, like we getting closer. <laughs> and so maybe about, maybe about like after 30 days, she slid in my DM and she sent me a message. And um, Come on, yeah. Ava. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And so the message was, um, well, who has the right to see your story? And I said, nobody, I'm waiting on you. And so she said, well, I'll be in New York in about 30 days. Maybe we can sit down and have, and have lunch. We had dinner. And I knew, I said, from the moment I sit down with her, this is my moment that I have to just tell her everything to get her to, to want to do this story. And so we have dinner, and the conversation goes great. And by the end of the conversation, when it's time to leave, she says, can I meet the other guys? Yeah. And that's when I'm like, yeah, I got her. This is yeah. it. And the rest is history. I love that. I mean, adding on to that, I would love to hear from you, um, you all were looking at scripts, right? Like y'all yeah. were intimately involved. Um, why was it so important for you, even though you, you know, tweeted her, you met her, you found out that you, you realized that she was the one, 
Why did you continue to stay so intimately involved in the narrative? In the because story? it was about controlling the narrative. For so long, we didn't have a voice. And when the documentary came out from Ken Burns, we were able to get the voice back. And now we don't want to lose it. And so now we start to do all this talking. We start to travel across the country. And so at this point, we really are controlling the narrative. Yeah. And, and, so, um, and so for Ava, you know, once you sign that contract and you sign your life rights away, you're, you're trusting that whoever has this story can do whatever they want. Yeah. Right? And so you really lose your power. Yeah. You know, you really lose the power, and they can do what they literally do whatever they want, and that's why you see sometimes in other situations people start complaining after the story gets dropped. But with Ava, it was different. So with Ava, we got the scripts early, got to read them, got to call her. Yeah. I don't like this. It wasn't like this. It was like this. She took it out. She changed it. You know, she listened. Like you know, um, we got to sit in editing sessions, coloring sessions, sound. Um, the guys were able to go on set every day if they wanted to. Um, I mean, it was, and she would pull Yusuf and his mom, like, you know, the scene where you see where they're walking through the gate and she finds out that Donald Trump puts the ad out. Mm. Like, across the street is Yusuf and his mom on set watching that. Wow. And so Ava was very transparent, you know. She, she let us in all the way and didn't sugarcoat nothing. Yeah. So the story was told very accurately. And it was told also at such a great time in our history, not excellent. I mean, obviously there's a lot of challenges still happening, but when you were released from prison, mm -hmm. when uh, you were falsely convicted, um, it was a different time in our country's history. Um, now, so much of criminal justice reform, you have celebrities talking about criminal justice reform, yeah. It has now become a bipartisan effort. What do you make of the narrative, the conversation that people are having about criminal justice reform now? That I like that um, in 1989, the media can paint a picture of, of, of five boys and criminalize us in the media, and everybody bought a hook, line, and sinker, right? We were considered the most hated human beings on the planet Earth, the five of us, where people wanted to give us, they, they, they call for the death penalty. People call to castrate us. Like this is how bad it went. We couldn't, we had death threats. My family couldn't leave out the house sometimes. Um, so, and so, to go from that narrative to now is a shift where a lot of people really understand what's going on with the system. How, how a system can criminalize boys that can make people turn their backs on them in an instant. Now people know the truth. And so now people will be skeptic when they see other cases and won't be so fast and won't be so easy to, and quickly to judge. And I love that. I love that now we have social media that you can put out a tweet and it can travel all around the world in seconds. Mm -hmm. And people will give input and people will be supportive and you can start a movement that easy, overnight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And people are willing to dig into the story. Definitely. Make sure it's right and we don't rush to judgment. And they will call you out. They will. <laughs> you put something out there that's wrong, they'll call you out on it quick. Yes, they will. And so we didn't have that in 89. Yeah. Right? We had a, a whole country, a whole world who believed four major newspapers out of New York City plus, you know, the TV at night when they sat there and ate their dinner and they watched how we were vilified on these TV sets and how, you know, we're sitting in courtrooms and because there weren't any cameras, right, the sketch artist drew you but he drew you with these dark circles around your eyes. Mm. Looked like you had fangs. Mm. And now I paint that narrative that people say, mm, they look guilty. They must have been doing something. 
and it's just so easy for them to control the story. Did you ever get an apology? Never. Hmm. I mean, in other words, we got the opposite. You know, these people, prosecutors, police officers, still say that they did, they did a great job. They did good old-fashioned police work, and they stand by the conviction. Mm -hmm. What about the newspapers? They, did they ever? Never. Even Never. to this day? Even to this day. Um, you've talked about this. We saw this in When They See Us. But you also, in interviews, talked about um, how when um, you got out, um, your stepmother called you a rapist. Mm -hmm. um, there was just a lot of things happening in your house and didn't seem like there was an ability to really care for you um, after your release or even during your incarceration. Um, they had to deal with the shame, they yeah. had to deal with rumors. As someone whose brother is incarcerated right now, my mm -hmm. brother, um, I'm learning what it means to support someone who is, my brother's facing six life sentences. And what does it mean to support someone who might spend the rest of their living life um, in incarcerated? Can you just talk to us a little bit about the toll it takes on family, the role that families can play yeah. in supporting someone who is incarcerated? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was rough. I was a 14-year-old kid, and this was my first time ever getting arrested. Um, and I came from a big family. And so five uncles on my mother's side, three uncles on my father's side, and nobody wanted to help us, right? So literally, it was just me and my dad and my grandmother at the time. And so when my bail even gets reduced down to 25000 from 250000 right, cash, there was no 10% for us. And so when it finally gets reduced after months to $25,000, nobody wants to put up any money. So, um, and so for my dad, you know, he faced ridicule on a daily basis at his job. He developed a drinking problem. He didn't know how to function. He felt that he was less, of, less than a man because he failed at fatherhood when it came to protecting me and saving, my, you know, saving me from getting arrested. And so, uh, and then when I come back out of prison and I try to readapt and get my life back together and be with my family, I know that I can't be outside because I'm the first one that's released from the jogging case. So all eyes is on me. It's like you have to walk on eggshells. And now I have my father's wife who also believes that I might be guilty, right? And, and, and so at this point, it becomes so, it's so hard for me to function because the solitude that I have is in my household, but now I don't even have that because members in my household are looking at me funny. Mm -hmm. Well, now I can't even walk into the kitchen properly because I don't want to have any accidents. So I, I, I be confined to staying in my room, which becomes the size of a cell. And that's where I feel my solitude at until my dad one, one day knocks on the door and he says, why are you always in your room? And it's at that moment that I said, wow this is where I feel comfortable at. This is where I feel safe with the door closed. Mm. You know? And so it, it, it takes its toll on family because when somebody gets incarcerated, your family also gets incarcerated with you because they have to deal with all that. Yeah. You know? And so, so my dad, he, and, and he, at times he couldn't even go outside because the media was sitting there waiting for him to interview and put cameras in his face. He had to hear the death threats on the phone when he picked up the phone. 
So they def it definitely takes a toll on family members. Yeah, one of the things at Color Change we uh, realized fairly early on was the role of district attorneys. Yeah. Um, we saw very vividly in when they see us, you know, with uh, the police, with um, the district attorneys, just the aggressive tactics that they used. Yeah. And not a lot of people understand the role of district attorneys. They don't understand that 94% of district attorneys across the country run unopposed, um, that so many district attorneys, um, you know, they're not being held accountable um, for how they're prosecuting. We launched a website called Winning Justice, which is uh, the largest website where you can look for your prosecutor, uh, you can figure out what policies um, they're thinking about, what they're reporting on, um, making sure that they're not doing anything mischievous. And so uh, we, we just launched that. We did a microsite for when they see us so that folks can go in and find uh, the Elizabeths of yeah. the world, um, right? Because yeah. this happens in all communities. That's right. Um, what does accountability look like for you when you think about what these prosecutors did to you in your life? Mm -hmm. You know, we're running a campaign against them. Yeah. But what does accountability look like for you? For me, it starts off with taking away prosecutor uh, immunity, right? You pull that away because in our case, the prosecutors have immunity. And, and the only reason why Elizabeth Letterer was named in our civil suit was because they acted as lead investigators. Meaning they were directing the whole thing. They were telling the police what to go look for, what to bring back, and how to put it together. And that's the only reason why they, they named in the lawsuit. If it wasn't for that, they would just get away scot-free. And so the first thing we have to do is look at that, take away that immunity, because the thing is that we know prosecutors make mistakes. They just don't want to stand on those mistakes. It's hard for them to say, you know what, I did mess this up. I apologize. And in most of these cases where you have these exonerees, I would say 95% of the prosecutors say they did a good job. Yeah. And they stick to that same narrative, that false narrative that you're still guilty or you're still guilty of something. Yeah. If you didn't do this, well, you must have did this. You know, they, it's just that hard for them to, 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 uh, to just say they're sorry and that they messed up. And do you think some of the challenge is because they know that all these cases would be open? Yes. They want you to believe that they, it's just fail-proof? Yeah, of course. Of course. And that's the thing. I mean, but when you mess up, that's, that's part of the accountability, right? If, if you work in a job and you mess up, they start calling you out on things that you did, other, you know, as far as other things that you did on that job, right? It's a trail. This isn't just the one time you messed up. You had to mess up several other times. So you have to go back and correct everything. And that's the only way, that's the only proper way to do it, is to look at your caseload and see where else have you messed up in the past and have you wrongfully kicked, convicted somebody else before our case. You know? What do you think uh, accountability uh, looks like for the detectives, the police officers who are putting kids in rooms mm -hmm. with no food, uh, with no access to restrooms, denying them access to their parents? What does accountability look like if we see that, if we hear about that? Because I'll be honest with you, as a you know, young kid growing up in the inner city, 
that was my worldview. That's all, I, I mean, it's like, oh, that's a dirty cop. Oh, that, right, it was commonplace, it was normal. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think accountability looks like? They shouldn't be on the force. At the end of the day, they should lose their jobs. In our, in our case, we found four detectives who, um, after the jogging case, got caught in numerous misdealings, and they never got held accountable. They were able to retire early and live lavish lives with their pensions. Like we had Detective Arroyo, who um, he gets caught in this thing in Washington Heights where they find this dead guy in the car, and it's $30,000 in the trunk. And they take it, and they split it among three police officers. Of course they do. And it's the rookie, and it's the rookie who turns them in. Right? You find another cop by the name of Mike Sheehan who every day he came on the, on the force, he would clock in and he went and he hung out at his sister's bar and he drunk all day. So he was stealing company time. And nobody noticed that until one day he's driving drunk and he catches a DUI because he hits a police horse. Right? But he never gets reprimanded. He, he gets to retire and then he gets to go on and be a news anchor on Fox 5 and Channel 11. Right? And, 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 and the last case that we found was a detective who, um, was able to retire, moved down to Florida, and he caught a conspiracy case on being hired muscle for the mob. And then came back to our case and went to a deposition and said he was a decorated officer. Decorated? Yeah. Okay. Until we pulled, yeah, until we pulled that case out and then he pleaded the fifth. Wow. And so it, it's stuff like this that, you know, it, 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 if they can sweep it under the rug, they will. Do you believe all of their cases should be open? Yes, I do. I do. Once you have, I mean, once, you, especially when you sit there and you say, we did nothing wrong. This yeah, was great doubling police. down on Yeah, this was great police work. All we did was ask them what happened and they just told us the this, this story. We just wrote it down. You know? Um, definitely, cases should be re-examined re and re-looked at. Yeah. Um, I'm supposed to go to the last question, but now I'm just on a roll. Um, <laughs> I know they like giving me all the signs. I'm, I'm, I got another question. Um, I, you know, so much of what um, happens in the criminal justice system, folks, a lot of folks here, other folks who were here today, spent so much of today talking about young black boys, um, black and brown boys, boys of color, and the ways in which the criminal justice system seduces them, mm -hmm. um, traps them, take, takes them in, frankly, very early on. Um, when I think about the boys and young men of color in my own life, that was also true. In many cases, for just boys being boys. In the first episode of When They See Us, um, so many of you, right, um, were like following one to the park, or like riding bikes, or doing all the things we've seen um, all boys do, mm -hmm. of all um, shapes and colors. When you think about the narrative that is so pervasive about um, young black boys of color, what are some of the things, the stories that are being told about young black boys um, that you think we need to change? I mean, that we have to get away from the narrative of letting the media paint this picture, right? Because for us, the first thing they did was just, they dug into our history, right? And if I had a fight at school, then that was written about. 
and, and it, it helped paint this picture. There were over 400 articles written about us within the first two weeks of this case, dissecting our lives and painting this picture that we were bad kids and that we came from broken homes, which was, that was false. And so when you, when you, paint, when you paint that picture, then what happens is that the public starts to believe it. And when the public starts to believe it, there is no outcry for justice. The public turns its back. And what you see it with us, what started with us, led to the 1994 crime bill, right, which started mass incarceration. It led to 41 states changing their juvenile laws because we became known as super predators. And that's how they started. From, from our case, they start to give us these labels that now these young kids are becoming more heartless and they're starting to commit these crime, more heinous crimes in white areas. So people really thought, well, this crime is going to be coming to my neighborhood mm -hmm. now. We got to do something they about it. They created this fear around They created it. this fear. And once you create that fear, the public wants justice, and the, and the public wants you to achieve that at any means, and it becomes on our backs that that starts to happen. Yeah, yeah. Last question. Um, so what's, what's next for you, and what do you want uh, people to walk away with uh, after they've watched? your story? Well, what we want them to walk away with is the awareness. We want them to, you know, at first we know that it's very emotional, right? But if you can get past that emotional part and you re-watch the series, there's a lot of things in there that pertain to the criminal justice system that we can learn from. So we want that awareness. We want you to have those discussions with your kids to tell them what's out there and what can potentially happen to them. Um, and what's next for us is to keep conveying the message keep getting out there and, and telling these young kids that at the end of the day that this is real, because that's the first step, to, to, to putting the awareness out there that they have to see that it's real and it happens all the time and you can be next. And how do we stop you from being next? And to our listeners, what story would you like to be told? Let us know by using the hashtag Tell Black Stories. For more on the hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast, visit storytellers.colorofchange.org slash podcast.